Hello, welcome back to Clinician's Brief Partner Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Beth Mollison, and I'm so excited to talk to our guest today, Dr. Robin Downing. And if you don't know Dr. Downing, she is the founder of the International Veterinary Academy of Pain Management and owner of the Windsor Veterinary Clinic and the Downing Center for Animal Pain Management in Windsor, Colorado. Um, Today, we will be getting her advice on an important topic, multimodal management of osteoarthritis beyond NSAIDs. We are truly honored to have her with us today. And a very big thank you to our industry partner, PRN, for sponsoring this conversation. So Dr. Downing, you've accomplished so many things in your career. Do you mind to give us a little bit of a bio about your background, credentials, and where your passions lie in veterinary medicine, please? Well, thank you, Dr. Mollison, for speaking with me today. It's really a privilege and my pleasure to be with you. So just a little bit of background. After graduating from the University of Illinois in 1986, I had my own house call practice in North Central Wyoming for five years, where I was able to bring quality companion animal care into people's homes in an area where companion animals, cats and dogs, had always gotten the short end of the stick. So while the large animal vet was there at the ranch, hey, doc, as long as you're here, can you give my dog a shot? <laughs> well, it was really a, quite an educational experience before I purchased the Windsor Veterinary Clinic here in Windsor, Colorado in 1991. I really got seriously engaged in improving companion animal pain management in the late 90s in partnership with Pfizer Animal Health. Now we know them as Zoetis. After earning my uh, diplomate credential in the American Academy of Pain Management, which is a human pain management credential, and training in canine rehabilitation at the University of Tennessee, I, I did help to found the International Veterinary Academy of Pain Management, the IVAPM, and then had the privilege of serving as that organization's second president. It was around that same time that I founded the Downing Center for Animal Pain Management, which was Northern Colorado's first comprehensive animal pain management and and pain prevention practice. So since then, never letting moss grow under my feet, uh, I actually achieved diplomate status in the American College of Veterinary Sports Medicine Rehabilitation. I've been involved in the fear-free movement and have completed both a master's and a doctorate in clinical bioethics, intending to translate that discipline for application in both clinical veterinary practice and ultimately for me to move to work in human medicine as a clinical ethicist. But for now, my focus remains absolutely laser beam narrow on cats and dogs and helping them live their very best lives to be as comfortable as they can to live until the very end of their lives the best way that they can. I love it. Yes. No moss anywhere near you, Dr. Downing. So thank you so much for allowing us to tap into all that expertise and imparting some of your wisdom um, on this topic today. So again, part of why I wanted to have this conversation is really because of my own experiences in general practice. I feel like even since I graduated 10 years ago, things in the pain management arena have changed. I remember in vet school, it seems like we managed so many things with NSAIDs and tramadol. And really didn't spend a lot of time discussing other options. I mean, I remember those were kind of the two standards. So I, of course, wanted to talk about what the pain management landscape looks like today 
particularly focusing on osteoarthritis pain just for the sake of the conversation today. Um, and so I want to start by getting your insights on how general practitioners should be approaching pain and a bit about how to have a productive conversation with owners about signs of pain. I feel like it can be really tricky subject to navigate in general practice. Of course, there's a pressure of time constraints. You have the another thing I, I think causes a lot of pressure is you have the whole spectrum of pet owners, those who are acutely aware of their pet's needs, you know, the pet owners that are sometimes too aware and will pick up on things that may not even be there. Um, and then those on the other side of the spectrum who may still hold the outdated beliefs about pets really not even feeling pain the way humans do. So what tips have you gathered? What tips do you have for us on how to break down some of those barriers and help address pain with our clients? What a great question, because as we know, um, I mean, as, as you know, as well as I Communication is absolutely critical and messaging is absolutely critical. And so we have to really focus our attention on creating not just accurate messaging, but effective messaging. And we need to remind ourselves that all of the communication experts let us know that during our time in the exam room with our clients, They'll, they'll come out of that experience remembering about 10% of what we say, and we can't predict which 10% they'll actually remember. So this, the reason this becomes so critical, um, is that we actually have an obligation both to our patients and to our clients to make certain that what we deliver to them is just as clear and effective and accurate as possible. This also gives me a chance to make a sidebar comment about how important it is for us to train our team so that our team, our nurses, our veterinary assistants, our client care specialists can actually amplify our message, the doctor's message to our clients. Because another fact is that we know from marketing research that we humans need to hear a message at least three times before it really starts to sink in. So understanding that messaging is critical means amplifying that message by having our team trained to speak with one voice. So circling back to osteoarthritis and chronic pain in cats and dogs, our data under, help us understand that about 20% of both cats and dogs across all ages have some element of osteoarthritis. That is a staggering number. That's one in five. One in five of all ages. And we know that the incidence increases as our patients age. We also need to be sure that we communicate to our clients that cats and dogs just do not moan, groan, or cry out with pain. I know that I've been known to offer a groan or two as I get out of the chair. <laughs> um, I am in my 60s now, and so that kind of thing happens. But boy, I have yet to have a dog or cat who does that in my household. It also is important for us to communicate to our clients that our cats and dogs possess our own wiring. They are wired neurologically just like we are. So pain is pain. The same for them as it is for us. There's this concept called the principle of analogy, which lets us know that if something is painful to us humans, it will be painful to our canine and feline companions to the same degree. 
we also now understand that monotherapy for osteoarthritis pain, meaning reaching for a single treatment token like a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug is obsolete. And our clients really need to hear this unequivocally. Unfortunately, with how things happen in our world and in human medicine, things are often spun as a silver bullet, the, the magic drug. And we need to really be careful to make sure our clients know there's no such thing. It's also critical for us to create client expectations. We can't simply say, if you do A, then within this period of time, B, your pet will be restored to wherever they were when they were two years old. We have to actually create our clients' expectations. What does that really translate to? Well, it means allowing them to really come to grips with the fact that osteoarthritis and chronic pain are the gift that keeps on giving. That pain management for those issues is multimodal, multifactorial, and it's forever because we can't cure osteoarthritis. We can only slow its progression and mitigate its results on our patients. We also need to help our clients understand that pain changes over time. And so pain management will change over time as well. And then finally, circling back to training our team, we have to have our support team ready, willing, and able to participate in both delivering and reinforcing our pain management messaging. Our clients need repetition. And what we know is our staff really need and want to contribute to good patient care. And they want to contribute to success in the practice. What we know from the great resignation that happened as a result of the COVID pandemic is that people leave work when they are having no sense of satisfaction, when they feel like they can't advance, when they feel like they're not really making a contribution. This is a great call to arms for those of us in veterinary practice to remember that we're going to lose good team members unless we provide them the opportunity to make a contribution to the practice. And this is a great way to do it. I love that. So many good insights there, Dr. Downing. And switching direction a little bit, but as we talk about OA, are there any tips you have when it comes to the actual physical exam itself? Are there any common oversights or ways that we can improve pain assessment so that we can pick up on that 20% that you mentioned, um, you know, during our actual physical time with the patient? Or would you say more often we should maybe dedicate more of that time to relying on the owner's history and asking more thorough or just more questions of the owner? Another great question. <laughs> this is, you're really getting to the, to the meat and potatoes of good, this issue. <laughs> so one of the things that we just know and that I have taught for years is that a good thorough pain assessment has to be part of every single physical exam. And I'm talking about every pet, every exam, every time, all ages. And why in the world would I think that a pain assessment exam would be important in a 16-week-old kitten, for instance? Well, it's the same reason that you and I were taught in veterinary school to listen to every single heart that walked into our exam room. 
When we listen to every single heart that walks into our exam room attached to a dog or cat, our brain gets attuned to what does a normal heart sound like. And it means that our brain is also attuned to notice very subtle changes that reflect abnormality. The same is true of a pain assessment exam. If we get ourselves in the habit of doing a good screening pain exam on every patient, every time, the minute that patient changes their response to our assessment on the physical exam, we are going to notice and we're going to zero in on what we see. One of the things I can refer listeners to is an article that I wrote and was published in Clinician's Brief um, in August 2011. So it's been a while, but the principles are the same. And it was about managing chronic maladaptive pain in dogs. My point is that there was a piece in that article that describes a pain palpation screening exam to help veterinarians know where should you touch your patients to actually ask them, does it hurt when I touch you here? So while this isn't a new article, the information is still absolutely relevant and it can be applied to both dogs and cats. Now, the second part of that pain assessment really is the client history, and the client history is critical. One of the things that we've incorporated into our examination is that my veterinary nurse will start the appointment, so I leverage her to get that preliminary history before I do my physical And she asks open-ended questions and listens very carefully to the responses because what we're looking for are changes in that animal's behavior. And then when I'm doing my physical, which includes that pain palpation, I'm asking my client to talk to me. Tell me more about my nurse Cassidy mentioned this. Can you tell me more? And then I remind myself that I was given two ears and one mouth for a reason. And I close my mouth and I listen because I can be doing my palpation and listening carefully at the same time. So this allows us to really leverage our ability and our professional skills in spite of the fact that we do have a very specific amount of time in the exam room with each client. I love that. And I think something that really hits home to me as a general practitioner is when you say doing that pain assessment on every pet, you know, certainly guilty of not necessarily doing that. But I also have to think that if you are doing it on every pet, you become that much more efficient and then you do actually have time to do it on every pet. So good insights there. Chronic inflammation slows pets down. There's no cure, and failure to reduce the chronic inflammation can cause tissue damage. Treatments like steroids or NSAIDs may help, but can also have unwanted side effects. Alternatively, one line of products is helping ease joint pain and inflammation. Only Duralactin contains microlactin, a natural milk protein which supports joint health and assists in inflammation reduction. Duralactin is ideal for long-term use with minimal side effects. Duralactin products are made for dogs, cats, and horses. See how Duralactin can help animals manage chronic inflammation at Duralactin.com.
And so Dr. Downing, when it comes to pain management and our friends with osteoarthritis, I want to discuss kind of what's in our toolbox and also maybe what shouldn't be in our toolbox and why a multimodal approach to OA and pain is important because again, let's face it, I think a lot of us really do reach for NSAIDs and call it a day. And this is often because we don't have a great comfort level with what the other options are out there. Is there a stepwise approach we should have to addressing the animal's pain and inflammation or is it very much individual dependent? Well, that is not an easy question to answer (laughs) because it's sort of yes and versus yes but. (laughs) So let me start with what should not be in our pain management toolbox. Tramadol has no business being used at all in companion animals for pain. And simply put, it is clearly unethical for any veterinarian to prescribe this drug for pain in pets. My friend and colleague recently retired from the University of Georgia, Dr. Steve Budsberg, actually put it this way at the meeting of the American College of Veterinary Surgery when he said that his study about tramadol in dogs with chronic pain from osteoarthritis should, quote, put the last nail in the coffin, close quote, of using tramadol. There's a great paper in the JAVMA on this very topic, easy for listeners to search for. If you just search tramadol Budsberg in JAVMA, it'll come up. So now what do we do? Well, Another thing that we need to consider not putting in our pain management toolbox are supplements or technology without any supportive data. Now, sometimes we're not going to end up with a white paper published in a peer-reviewed journal, but as you know and as, as our listeners know, the supplement field is kind of a wild west where there is... I wouldn't say there's no regulation, but the regulation is pretty loosey-goosey. So with nutraceuticals, for instance, nutritional supplements that act like a drug but aren't a drug, nutraceutical data really needs to be generated not with an individual ingredient, but with the formulation utilized in the target species. And we need to be able to witness that we get positive outcomes. And the same is true with technology. We actually need to demand data generated in the target species. So it's not enough to say this worked in rats or even that this worked in humans. We can often extrapolate from human medicine to animal medicine, but we do need to have some assurance that any technique or product is both safe and effective in our species. So when I think about building a pain management toolbox, I recognize that multimodal pain management means multiple tools that address the pain from different directions. So when I discuss this with clients or with colleagues, I talk about the pet being at the center of a pain relieving circle or the hub of a wheel. And each of my multimodal tools are like spokes on that wheel. My three general targets when I think about a pain management protocol are inflammation, nerve involvement, and the tissues themselves. So tissue support. In this case, we're talking joint support. And I consider three general categories of tools I'm going to use. Pharma tools, 
non-pharma tools, and then physical medicine and environmental considerations. I'd like to address each of these kind of in turn. So if we look at inflammation and nerve function, and we look at pharmacology, we understand that NSAIDs actually still do serve as a cornerstone of good, effective multimodal pain management. And we have excellent, excellent, excellent resources, some quite recently published, that help reinforce this notion. We also have data that let us know NSAIDs alone, as you have articulated, not a magic bullet, but they do really work very well to help us decrease inflammation and the pain that results from inflammation. Other pharmacology tools that I keep in my toolbox include the polysulfatic glycosaminoglycans, PSGAGs. PSGAGs are known here in the U.S. as adequin, and I do use PSGAGs extra label, which means I use them in cats as well as dogs, and this is off-label use, but this is a non-oral way for us to work with cats who are notorious for hating to take things by mouth. And my another, in fact, in my practice, uh, one of my first go-tos for uh, inflammation as well as nerve pain, really focusing on the nerve piece, is gabapentin. Gabapentin uh, now we do have a paper in the literature about using gabapentin for chronic maladaptive pain from osteoarthritis in dogs. It was a paper that I must disclose um, was a study in my pain practice, a retrospective study of 240 dogs in using gabapentin. And my, my goal in doing this study was to get dosing into our literature to let practitioners know just how aggressively we can and should be using gabapentin in these patients. What's really cool about the pharma piece in multimodal pain management is that we have new tools that are coming to us, like monoclonal antibodies, like a radioactive treatment for osteoarthritic joints in dogs. This is the product that is the um, radioactive uh, isotope of tin. And these are targeted therapies, which is really a relatively new concept in animal pain management, but has been on the radar in human pain management for quite some time. Non-pharma tools are just as important. First and foremost, what is your patient eating? There are nutrient profiles now that have been proven in clinical studies to really help us manage chronic maladaptive pain in our companion animal patients. We should use them. Omega-3 fatty acids, specifically EPA at a therapeutic dose, remembering that we must use a triglyceride form of omega-3 and um, it is needs to be used at a therapeutic dose and those doses are in the literature. Another non-pharma tool uh, is a formulation taking advantage of pernicanoliculus or the green lip muscle. But again, looking at the formulation, not just that ingredient of green lip muscle. Another non-pharma tool, undenatured uh, cartilage uh, uh, type 2, excuse me, um, where we have 
oral tolerance where we actually use the immune system to help us. And the unique mechanism of action lets us know that that oral tolerance happens whether the animal is a 10-pound cat or a 110-pound Great Dane. And finally, one of my favorite nutraceutical tools is the molecule microlactin. Microlactin is the active ingredient in the PRN Pharma product called Duralactin. And one of the really interesting things about this molecule microlactin is that it's a milk protein that's been extracted from the milk of hyperimmunized cows. And it has an alternative mechanism of action to both steroids and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. One of the reasons that's so critically important is that we know that we cannot superimpose some drugs on others. So, for instance, we wouldn't use steroids and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs at the same time. We also know that there are some contraindications between some drugs and steroids other drugs and non-steroidals. Whereas microlactin, because it works by this alternative pathway, activating cytokines and leukotrienes, this is an alternative pathway in the body, which allows us to use those two compounds together. Now, the disadvantage to microlactin is like many nutraceuticals, it takes a little bit of time to be maximally effective. And so this would be a 10 to 14 day period in the average patient. And that's why we can't use microlactin or durlactin postoperatively for acute pain. But by inhibiting cytokines and leukotrienes in these patients with chronic maladaptive pain, when we use it at the same time as the non-steroidal, once we achieve good comfort, we can actually titrate down that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug to a dose that is the lowest effective dose. One last advantage I want to mention about the molecule microlactin is that we have excellent data for its use in multiple species. So we have good data in horses, in rats, in dogs, and even in humans. In the European Union, this molecule is actually available for human use as well. So I mentioned titrating the dose of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug down to a lowest effective dose. My good friend and colleague at North Carolina State University, Dr. Duncan LaSalle, did an excellent, excellent study asking the question, when we have a patient with chronic pain and we're using a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, can we reduce the dose to a lowest effective dose? And the consequence of his study was the that no, we can't. The answer was no, we can't. And that led practitioners to the misunderstanding that in all cases, we cannot lower the dose of non-steroidal. But if we look at the methods of that paper, Dr. LaSalle was using non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs as the sole treatment. And it's true. If we only have non-steroidals on board, we can't actually lower the dose because they need the therapeutic dose. But in a multimodal treatment plan, we actually are taking advantage of coming at that patient's pain from multiple perspectives and multiple pathways in the body. Remember that image of the patient being the hub of a wheel and each of our multimodal tools being a spoke on that wheel. 
So what's an advantage of reducing our reliance on a non-steroidal in a patient who needs multimodal pain management? Well, first of all, in theory at least, we reduce the workload on the organ systems that have to deal with that molecule and excrete it from the body. That's theoretical. We don't have any white papers that actually demonstrate that that is useful, but intuitively it makes sense. Here's the more important reason. If I have a patient who has chronic maladaptive pain and I've restored them to good activity, there's a pretty good opportunity for them to do something silly like step in a gopher hole and sprain their carpus or have to have a surgery and have a tumor removed. If they are on a therapeutic dose of a non-steroidal, a full dose of a non-steroidal, and they have an acute pain episode, I am really limited in how I can help them. But if I have been able to titrate their non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug dose down to either a sub-therapeutic dose or even no dose at all, and they have an acute pain episode, I've got that non-steroidal available to me to use for that acute pain episode. And that has been very, very liberating in my practice. We must address inflammation with other tools. And that, of course, circles us back to why it's so useful for us to use a tool like the molecule microlactin. And finally, I want to mention that multimodal pain management is not only about giving things, giving a nutraceutical, giving a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, giving gabapentin to the patient. It's also about things like physical medicine, photobiomodulation, for instance, or targeted pulsed electromagnetic field therapy, or extracorporeal um, shockwave therapy. And therapeutic exercise once pain is controlled, helping our clients actively participate in their pet's pain management protocol. We also can reach for formal physical rehabilitation. That's one of the things we do in my practice. I'm also a medical acupuncturist, and that serves a great role in my pain patients. Medical massage is another technique that we can leverage on our patient's behalf. And finally, managing the environment, helping our clients with things like mobility age, um, wheelchairs, vests for support, creating non skid surfaces, raising food and water dishes off the floor, restricting access to stairs when the pet is unsupervised. These are all little things that if we've got them in our heads, that it's easy for us to work these things into our uh, limited time conversation with our clients in the exam room. And having a handout, a simple handout that we can just give to our clients to let them know, hey, I'm going to let you read about this at home. Here's your homework assignment. I want you to better understand why I'm making the recommendations I'm making. These are all little ways for us to really enhance our effectiveness in helping our patients who have chronic maladaptive pain from osteoarthritis. Wonderful. So like we just touched on, there are certainly a myriad of ways we can help these pets are there things we can do proactively when it comes to osteoarthritis management? Are there ways we can help before a significant issue arises when it comes to arthritis? Absolutely. The most important prevention of osteoarthritis 
is slow growth of puppies and kittens. So slow controlled growth, because we know if they grow too quickly, we can actually induce orthopedic issues as well as obesity. And then maintaining optimal body composition scores throughout life. Now, I use the term body composition rather than body weight, because what we now know from the nutritional guidelines is that body composition, so muscle composition, muscle to fat comparison is really important. If we're using a five scale, um, when we think about body composition scoring, we were taught that three out of five is ideal. And what we now know that is that a little bit on the lean side, so having our cats and dogs look more like marathoners than like linebackers is better. And on a nine scale, instead of four and a half, closer to four is probably reasonable. We now have solid data in dogs that lets us know that we end up with greater longevity in animals and dogs that are kept lean throughout their lives. But not only that, they have better lives. They actually don't just live longer, they live better. And we postpone the onset of osteoarthritis and we may be able to prevent the onset altogether. Um, as a sidebar, I want to make a quick uh, comment about Dr. Daryl Mills, who was one of my professors in my physical medicine training at the University of Tennessee. And uh, one of the studies that he did was actually to look at research beagles and running them on treadmills because he was curious to know if dogs were regularly exercised with pretty rigorous exercise, was it inevitable that they would eventually develop osteoarthritis? And it turns out that that's not the case if we pay attention to their body composition. The other piece of prevention is that, unfortunately, there's really no study to demonstrate that any medicine or supplement will actually prevent osteoarthritis. Um, it's really hard to prove a negative in any scientific setting. However, this is where our discernment as practitioners really comes into play, because intuitively, if we as veterinarians look at the conformation of our patients or their congenital developments, we actually have patients that we can easily see are at risk for developing osteoarthritis at a greater risk than, say, the general population. I'm thinking specifically about dogs that are chondrodysplastic. I'm thinking about dogs or cats that have an injury early in their lives. Those are the ones that we're going to pay special attention to. Dogs that develop uh, canine hip dysplasia or elbow dysplasia, these are developmental issues that do give us an opportunity to say, hey, we should intervene with some joint support early in these animals' lives to decrease inflammation and in this case, via nutraceuticals, this, this, these are the compounds I would reach for first in my practice because I can't hurt them and it's pretty likely I'll help them. And I may actually, with some of the newer nutraceuticals, be able to postpone the opportunity for that osteoarthritis to develop to a point where the animal is actually compromised. Wonderful. And I do want to take a second, Dr. Downing, to focus on cats specifically, because we all know that 
our feline friends can be a little bit unique when it comes to pain. So what would you say you notice are the biggest misconceptions about cats and osteoarthritis? Oh, cats. Cats remind (laughs) us every day. Cats remind us every day that they are not small dogs um, and they are not small humans. But all of these comments I've made up to this point really do apply to cats, not just dogs. And the one piece that we have to focus on even more carefully and more, we just have to have a narrower focus is this area of behavior changes. Because looking for and finding pain in cats is sometimes like looking for a needle in a haystack. Behavior changes are especially important and how cats handle being handled. So we have cats, we all, all of us practitioners have had cats in our practices that have earned the label bad cat. They don't like to be handled. They don't like to come to the veterinarian. And the majority of those cats actually are painful. And I would just state that categorically, that if we have a cat in an exam room that resents being handled, the first thing we have to think about is that cat may very well be painful. We'll also look for physical cues on cats. If their hair coat is unkempt, Cats are very fastidious about their outfits, about their clothes. And so if we have a cat who has an unkempt hair coat, they're not grooming themselves. We have to ask the question, why are not they not grooming themselves? We also need to listen for specific cues from the client. So for instance, I might have a client who says, you know, she just doesn't like me to pet her there, or she doesn't like me to groom her with a comb, or she doesn't jump up onto the sofa like she used to, or he doesn't sleep with me anymore. Those are the kinds of cues that give us the veterinarian an opportunity to say, okay, it's time for us to pay closer attention. And one of the really interesting things in my practice about this molecule microlactin, uh, the nutraceutical duralactin, is that the formulation is extremely well accepted in most of my feline patients. And because it's presented as a treat, most of the cats in my practice who need it actually are willing to take it. So that's another piece that I think it's important for veterinarians to understand is that sometimes we have to be a little creative in what we choose to use in our kitty patients. But really, the most important take-home message is we have to really pay attention to uh, our clients' descriptions of the cat's behaviors and to really understand how that cat handles being handled by us in the exam room. So osteoarthritis truly can be debilitating for some pets. Of course, oftentimes we'll see this in our large breed dogs. And of course, those have been some of the most heart-wrenching cases I've been a part of where, you know, we all have seen them. The pet is in great health otherwise, and yet so limited by its orthopedic disease. And it's just devastating. But unmanaged pain truly is a serious quality of life issue. And with your background in bioethics, I'm curious to get your opinion here. Do you have any advice on having these quality of life conversations with pet owners at this stage? Absolutely. 
You've really hit an important nail on the head because unmanaged or badly managed pain used to be a leading cause of euthanasia in veterinary medicine. Um, I've been in practice 36 years, and when I came out of school, we had very little guidance, very few tools, uh, really very little perspective on managing chronic maladaptive pain in dogs and cats. And in fact, we didn't even really understand that the maladaptive part, that it was really about alterations in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord that was part of a contributing factor in these animals' pain. So pain kills. And the the fact that I can look back uh, on my career path and understand that I am acquainted with animals who were led to euthanasia because they were painful and we couldn't help them, it breaks my heart. So from a bioethical perspective, bioethics recognizes that animals do in fact have moral agency that deserves both moral and medical consideration. And that demands urgency in our conversation with our clients about pet pain, because in order for us to really do no harm, which is a cornerstone foundational principle of clinical bioethics, it's critically important that we identify harms that are in place and do something about them. So understanding that bioethics demands that we do no harm, we understand that pain harms patients, we need to focus on pain as an issue. Another foundational bioethical principle is one called beneficence, which translates to doing good on behalf of the patient. And we know that relieving pain benefits patients on multiple, multiple levels. We need to be ready with a quality of life scale to help our clients when we get to this place where we are reaching a point of diminished returns, where we have a patient whose pain is advanced enough, their arthritic disease is advanced enough, or their um, mobility issues are advanced enough that we need to really start to weigh benefits to burdens, the benefit of ongoing treatment versus the burdens of those ongoing treatments to really measure quality of life. And pain management and assessing pain is only one part of assessing quality of life. I have relied on Dr. Alice Villalobos' quality of life scale with clients because it's very easily understood by clients, but I know that there have been some new entries into this arena of assessing quality of life, and I know that Lab of Love has some great resources for helping veterinarians help their clients better understand um, issues around that pet's quality and when the time comes for us to say enough is enough. One final comment about measuring quality of life is reminding ourselves that there can be this issue of pain causing weakness or this scenario where there's pain and weakness. And the reason this becomes important is that we have, if we have a patient who comes to us and they're weak in their rear quarters and they are having difficulty with mobility, it's very important for us to tease out, are they weak because they're painful or are they weak and they're painful at the same time? So the tangible example I like to use is that I had a little dachshund named Critter who was referred to me 
for me to help the clients measure him for a wheelchair because he had stopped using his rear quarters. He's a dachshund. He was older. He was actually 16 at the time, and he was not using his rear quarters. It seemed like a very logical referral. But when I did my assessment, he was excruciatingly painful in his back and lower torso. So instead of measuring him for a wheelchair, we began treating him for his pain. And it did, in fact, make the owners weep because within 36 hours, he was running around the house like he had when he was two or three years younger. So his pain made him weak. He didn't need a wheelchair. He needed pain management. And I'm proud to say that Critter went on to live to be 23 years old. Oh, so my gosh. It was a good thing <laughs> that we intervened the way we did. But I'm also dealing with a Border Collie right now who's a great dog and came to me with pain management issues. And he was very painful and very weak. And we've got his pain under control. So we palpate him. He has no reactivity. He's very, very comfortable. It's changed his affect. He's back to being the same brilliant border collie brain that he always has been. However, he has ongoing weakness in his rear quarters. So he's actually experiencing the symptoms that we associate with degenerative myelopathy. He had pain and weakness, not pain causing weakness. And I think that's a really, really critical distinction. Very interesting, Dr. Downing. And I have my nine-year-old dachshund sitting here, so I hope he's listening to that 23-year um, number. But that's amazing, the things that you have done to help these patients. And so we have made it to our Keep It Brief segment, which is just what we call when we go slightly off topic here at the end. So Dr. Downing, since we have you, I wanted to ask you in, you know, with all of your experience, all of the things you've done, all of the different sides of veterinary medicine that you have witnessed, what do you think has been the biggest, I know this is a, a big question, but what do you think has been one of the biggest or at least most interesting changes in veterinary medicine since you started practicing? With a 36-year perspective, I have to <laughs> say that the very biggest change in my career path that I have witnessed is this migration of biblical magnitude of animals, specifically pets, from the backyard to the bedroom and from the kennel to the couch. This elevation of the human-animal bond and its evolving importance in our culture. So Dr. Leo K. Bustetta at Washington State University is really credited with putting a laser beam focus on the human-animal bond. And a consequence of elevating the importance of the human-animal bond in our practice world has really been a cascade of events and effects that have changed the face and changed the nature of veterinary practice. So some of those things that I've had the privilege of witnessing and even participating in have been things like advancements in anesthesia. Oh my heavens, when I was first in veterinary school, we were still using methoxyfluorine and we would have patients that would sleep for a day after they had an anesthetic procedure. Pain management, of course, which has been our focus today, but also clinical nutrition, this idea that we can manage so many disease entities with an important tool of nutrition that actually focuses on those specific medical issues. Physical rehabilitation wasn't even on the radar when I started practice. And now we have things like 
the Cat Friendly Practice Program through the American Association of Feline Practitioners. I'm so proud to have been able to really shine a, a, a light on cat friendly practice and cat friendly practice techniques to help cats get the care they need and deserve. And then finally, to be able to have participated as one of the founders of the fear free movement in veterinary medicine, and understanding that we really can take the pet out of petrified and put the treat into treatment, allowing our patients to cooperate and participate in their own care. This is really, I mean, this is just a complete paradigm shift from early in my career when I was taught that if you can't get the job done with one person helping, bring two more people into the exam room, hold that animal down, and just do what needs to be done. And now with a focus on cooperative care and fear-free medicine and cat-friendly techniques, the landscape has changed dramatically, completely. And who benefits? Our pets and patients benefit. Our clients benefit because we know that one of the inhibiting factors in clients bringing their pets to the veterinarian is they're afraid that the pet's going to have a bad experience. And then finally, this benefits the veterinarian and the veterinary healthcare team because Let's face it, if we enjoy our jobs and we have fun at work, we're going to want to do more good things. And that certainly is the reason that after 36 years, I still look forward to going to work, working with my patients, working with my team, because it never gets dull. I love that, Dr. Downing. The veterinary profession is lucky to have you. And thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom with us today. Um, I know I learned a lot. I suspect our audience did as well. Um, And a very big thank you to our industry partner, PRN, for making this conversation today possible. And thank you to our audience for joining us today. Thanks again to our sponsor and to today's guests for joining us. And thanks to you all for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. We would appreciate if you leave us all the stars. You can also listen to podcasts on our website at cliniciansbrief.com slash podcasts. And you can also drop us a line at podcasts at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief Partner Podcast is a Brief Media production.